Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. I'm your host David and with me are the NCP crew, Richo. Hey, hey, hey. Crystal. Richo. Hey, hey, hey. And look. I'm getting jiggy with it. <laughs> You're a crazy person. Richo, got it? I got it. Let me hold this mirror right up to you and say, right, if you're surprised okay. by Crystal's behaviour, look in the mirror. Episode 12, obviously the, the on drugs episode. Woohoo! <laughs> Just say no, kids. The more you know. Stay at school. Nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture related film, book, and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in for good measure. I said that very fast, but I'm not going to do it again. Not only do we have the podcast, but we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com Alright. Yeah. Which features additional content not found on the podcast itself. This episode we have a dust jacket where we'll be looking at Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Highland, And our featured topic will be NCP's top five pop culture vehicles. I, uh, that's right people, it was originally top five sci-fi vehicles, but the, the uproar at not being able to include Herbie got to me. And I uh, changed it to pop culture vehicles. And don't forget Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I apologise. So whether, whether Herbie's in there or not, I, I, I won't reveal at this stage. But uh, bloody Herbie. Okay. But he's the love bug. <laughs> he is the love bug. That's true. I have nothing, oh, against, yeah. I have nothing against Herbie himself, but the films are awful. Uh, so on to Stranger in a Strange Land. Take it away, Richo. Okay, Stranger in a Strange Land is Robert Heinlein's 1961 novel. It is a Hugo Award winner and uh, considered by many to be one of the most influential science fiction books ever written. It is uh, Sci-Fi List's number six book, so it's pretty highly ranked. Um, what was it, number seven? <laughs> 2001. What was number five? Uh, number five is 1984. Also some of the most influential science fiction books ever written. Hmm. Yes, probably why they're number five <laughs> and number seven. <laughs> Stranger in a Strange Land tells the story of Valentine Michael Smith, who is a human uh, born of uh, astronauts who have landed on Mars. Marsonauts. <laughs> Thank you for that. Dave. <laughs> I didn't say I was going to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> We're Champ- informative. Champagne comedy. Uh, yeah, so he's the child of astronauts who land on Mars, but unfortunately the Mars mission is a disaster and everybody dies except him. But he is raised by Martians and eventually is brought back to Earth, uh, where he basically has very little understanding of humanity and human nature and how it works. And uh, much of the book is about his... Um, exploration of humanity and what humanity is and also his attempts to teach humanity some of the teachings of the Martians um, especially teachings about love and how we're all gods there is a thou art god is a very big part of his teachings so um, yeah so it's really just as I said an exploration of human nature and also an attempt by um, Heinlein and by his characters to teach humanity a new way of living and a new way of, of a new existence, basically, which is very um, hippie-like. Might be a good way to put it. Well, look when it was written. Exactly, he's actually predates 
the free love hippie movement by about five or six years, which is uh, rather interesting. Yeah, so it's actually quite a divisive novel, especially at this time, because we have two rather interesting views amongst the NCP crew. And, uh, Waldo, you want to start? I think this is a genius book. <laughs> what now? Five <laughs> looks all the way. Hang on a second. <laughs> I know you I know you should have approached for time when I get over it, but man! I, was... <laughs> I just want to point out to the NCP uh, listeners that that wasn't what... <laughs> Uh, Dave has been saying for well 12 episodes now in fact every single time that Stranger in a Strange Land has come up uh, he's looked at us with contempt so Dave let's start again untruth. <laughs> so let's start again Dave <laughs> tell us what you think of Stranger in a Strange Land my main problem with Stranger isn't that it's uh, sexist, boring, preachy inconsistent and moralising is, is that oh so you like that aspect of the book <laughs> well, it starts off quite interesting and then becomes Boring, preachy, inconsistent, and moralizing. Um, let's. This book is a disaster. So, as uh, Richard just said, uh, the main, the first part of the book uh, deals with the discovery of Smith and uh, the, you know, the the results of the Mars mission and he coming to Earth. All that's cool. It's you know, it's it's uh, pretty standard science fiction type stuff. It's, you know, who is this stranger in our midst? Is he alien? Is he human? What is what? He, what can he do? Apparently he's the richest man in the world because he owns Mars and all you know has a claim and all sort of stuff. Well, that's very very interesting. He meets his, he meets um, uh, Jill. She's very cool. All that sort of stuff. Then he meets Jubal, and the whole book descends into an absolute piece of rubbish. The second Jubal appears on sc- on the on the page. I was going to say on screen, but it'll be a movie version at some point. The believability and uh, interest in this book descends to zero. So it starts off reasonably well, three loops maybe. By the end of it, it's negative looks. Negative looks. Negative. Well, Luke. <laughs> okay. <Your> rebuttal. <laughs> I'm going to start off. Uh, we can certainly agree on one point. The start is very interesting with uh, not just this discovery, but also this, also setting up really not quite the dystopian, almost slightly fascistic nature of the. Um, the government and the world that they well, it's Highlands, so it's got to be at least slightly slightly fascist. Fascist. I was I always also read it with a with a, a hint of um, Chinese communism as well. The secretary general yeah. sort of does read come across as a bit of a chairman Mao type. You know, the sort of the, hum, the, I thought, the, I, I the humble of leader. Soviet sort of deal, yeah, though. well, the humble leader in front of his you know vast put upon hordes of yeah. subjects. Um, and it's, it's it's all very it's all very interesting. There's a little bit much. There's a little bit of telling. In that we're sort of getting told all this in terms of, in conversation as opposed to seeing, but um, even though the even show the, don't tell, yeah, show don't tell. But even the conversation is interesting, mm. and things like the revelation that Valentine Michael Smith is possibly the owner of Mars, and the Secretary General's attempts to get Mars through not very nice means. It should be pointed out, but me being nice to that, well, deceit. To begin with, seat. Um, um, totally understandable. Um, yeah, uh, it, that's all very interesting, and that's probably the point where you and I are going to disagree. In fact, we're not going to disagree. You're just wrong. <laughs> okay, the moment that Jubal Hirsch actually enters the frame, it the book sort of elevates. He's a completely different character to everyone else. He's um, more free, th- more free thinking. Um, more no. opinionated. He's, 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 got, he's not, got a personality. He's not free thinking. He's Heinlein thinking. Mm. Jubal Hirsch is nothing more than Heinlein's Mary Sue. Yeah. 
I mean, the man... Well, he's, so you he's, agree with that? He's, he's not just Highlands Mary Sue, he's, he's Highland himself. That's right. Hmm. How is that a good thing? Okay, I don't, the dude, I, the dude I, spends I, all his time moralising, preaching, you know, talking to the choir sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. He's nothing more than Highland in disguise as Hugh Hefner, with his bevy of secretaries. <laughs> I thought all, you were just... Subs- all incredibly subs- beautiful, all incredibly brilliant, and yet still just mere women who were not allowed to talk out of turn. I thought you would subscribe to that lifestyle there, Dave. No, I don't. And uh, I don't appreciate that being said either. You're a disgrace. Yes, I <laughs> Actually, maybe in a past life. For <laughs> <laughs> that, but more on to... This is where I am now. No, it's, it, this... Jubal actually offends me as a character. Mm-hmm. He's, he doesn't contribute anything to the plot. He spends all of his time preaching, and the pre- and not only that, but the sermonising is incredibly boring, and nothing you haven't heard before. It's mm-hmm. nothing original. I mean, if you took out all of uh, Jubal's sermonising, mm-hmm. the book would be a quarter of its length. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to the difference between the unedited and edited versions later. And uh, the way he treats his secretaries... It's just an absolute disgrace. But don't you see that as more a, a sign of the times in Heinland being that person before maybe starting the right... I'm, I'm just... This is not... I'm, I'm so sick of that a sign of the times. No, 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 I mean, no, no. It took him no, 10 no. years to write this book. No, as in, is is that him sort of writing on that, the way he was? And... Because Jubal Hirsch actually changes in the book. He sort he doesn't, of... He, he's he's actually he comes, to his secretaries doesn't change. But he comes around more to Valentin Michael Smith's way of thinking towards the end. It, st- it stops being... Only because he has that, no choice. That... <laughs> let me finish. <laughs> it stops being, you know, the way that he... Um, that he, it's, 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 he stops being uh, a moderator for the way that he thinks at, when we first meet him and starts to become more of... An acolyte is probably not quite correct because he's not so indoctrinated into Valentin Michael Smith's dogma. But he is certainly he's, he he becomes almost the pseudo leader of the movement towards the end, in charge of yeah, but not because he has any choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, it's only because uh, Smith refers to him as the father, mm-hmm. and so he's pretty much kidnapped into Smith's cult later mm-hmm. on. I mean, he's he's got no say in the matter. Mm-hmm. So it's it's either I'm now going to accept the teachings and and change my ways at least outwardly, mm-hmm. or I'm in trouble. He said you would discuss the differences later, but I was going to ask which version that you'd read because in some of the stuff that I read it, um, Jubal's character is actually more fleshed out in the full version rather yeah I read the full version yeah. mm-hmm. I read both versions I think I read both versions I've read the full version which is the one that's been published more recently mm. and I think I read an older edition which might have been the edited one from the late 60s early 70s because yeah. I, I read my stepdad's copy from, from everything I've read the, the, the original version's it's really not that different in terms of no. in terms of character. I mean, yeah. So basically, I mean, like I said at the end, he basically has no choice because, I mean, the cult and Smith himself, mm-hmm. very Manson like. I can understand why the the family liked this book, although yeah. Manson himself said he never read it, but a couple of his followers did. Yeah. In that, essentially, you need to be one with each other, mm. and anybody who disagrees with that, Smith's very happy to discorporate. Well, it did spawn a religion that exists to this day. Which obviously they don't discorporate people, but still, <laughs> that would be cool though. <laughs> and uh, they had a, a newsletter or something that Highline mm. subscribed to, only because he didn't want to be uh, an unpaid subscriber. He didn't want to get a free, so he paid to subscribe to it. Mm. Mm. So I mean, I mean, even I mean, and like I said, with the 
with the girls, the way women are treated in this book is is offensive. Mm. I mean, we're talking Red Hood and the Outlaws level of offensive. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's but you're don't forget you're also reading that from a very modern perspective. Um, but like I said, it took ten at, years. If you were reading this at the time, with the um, the cultural um, implications that you that sorry, that's still again. no excuse. No, I'm saying uh, okay. You're you're reading this from the from a modern perspective. If you're reading this from being a person living in that time, what would your perspective be? Well, I don't know. I was born after that time, mm. but that's that's still it's, how well, is that still an does, excuse? It's it's a very fifties mm. um, depiction of women. You find it a lot in Highland's work, yeah. Um, and to be fair, in the work of other writers of the time as well. Mm. Remember where I've got really nice skeletons. Remember, we are actually predating the Summer of Love and um, the movement that really this book um, predicts mm. is coming. But certainly, um, I mean, I agree, the depiction of women in this book is actually terrible. Um, but it's just, it is very much a reflection of its time, which is not an excuse, but should still be taken into consideration in a review. I don't think it took it took him 10 years to write it, did it? It took him 10 years to publish it. No, it took him 10 years to write it. Well, I read the, from start, he, from start he, to finish, it he took wrote, 10 years. He wrote it, and then he didn't publish it until 10 years later because mm. he didn't think people were ready for it. Mm. Oh, well, you and know, also, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it took him 10 years. And also, let's be fair, it wasn't just the Manson family that um, oh, no. embraced this book. I mean, it, the reason it became such a huge cult favourite Yep. Was because it was actually adopted well, by, by the, the by the hippies and the Summer yeah. of Love movement. So, yeah, okay, so it wasn't right. just I'm the not, Mansons. I'm not blaming this book on what the Mansons did. I'm just saying. <laughs> I can understand. The first things you mentioned, though. No, 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 no. I'm not doing that. I've never said that at all. I'm just saying I can understand why they embraced it. Mm. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Smith is quite happy to be the the loving, you know, cool hey, look at me, sort of, you know, man on the outside. But anybody that disagrees with him, Mm. they disappear. One of the reviewers I read said that um, he saw him as a a manipulator, a deliberate manipulator. Mm. Oh, yeah, Smith's, I mean, it's it's, moving on to that a bit more. It's just, I mean, the thing that, that, okay, I've pretty much said that that Jubal, so Jubal is bad. And the the thing that that annoys me about about this book is that it's called Stranger in a Strange Land, but it's actually not about Smith at all. Smith's not even the main character in this book. Jubal is. Oh, Jubal I, has I the dis- majority. Totally disagree, disagree with, with that. First things first. Okay, Jubal's not a bad character. You just don't like him. That doesn't mean he's a bad character. That's just a personal reaction on your part. No, I no I'm not saying. I'm not saying he's not sure that I like him. I'm saying he's a bad character because he is poorly written. I mean, he's he's, no, a, he's a massive Mary Sue. And, completely disagree. And any book of Mary Sue doesn't work. I think he's actually quite a fascinating character. As I'm sure Highland was probably a fascinating guy. From what I've from what I've read, he's actually quite interesting and quite intelligent and very divergent in his um, opinions and interests. This is, from what I can gather, a far cry from uh, Starship Troopers, which is all about... Um, so I don't think Starship's a better book. I completely disagree. At least, at least Starship is upfront about what it's saying. Mm-hmm. And don't worry, fans. It pretends that it's, that it's something else. Don't worry, fans. We will be getting to Starship Troopers uh, eventually on this podcast as well. Oh, yes. Mm. This... Um, I think, but I disagree completely. This is absolutely about Valentine Michael Smith. No. The entire plot yeah. hangs off of his actions and his incorporation into society. I think the important thing to remember start, here is it, that um, Jubal is actually not in the book to begin with. Hmm. He plays an he plays a pivotal role, no doubt about it. He plays a pivotal role in the second act of the book. 
Um, and I don't see him as a Mary Sue as such. He's certainly espousing certain philosophies, but he I think he serves an important role in helping Valentine Michael Smith develop his own mm. um, his own philosophies in his own way of thinking. Mm. But um, then Jubal drops out of the book again. So he's actually mm. gone for a while and doesn't really come back in until, you know, he's sort of indoctrinated into the cult at the end there. But the book, I think, this certainly does focus around Valentine Michael Smith a lot more than it does about Jubal. Mm. Jubal is a key supporting character yep. and probably the most important supporting character um, in the book. But I, it's not his story at all. I, I do have to disagree with you yeah. there. Well, Entitled to your opinion. I do like the, I do like the Hugh Hefner comparison though, because it's that's I do agree with it. You know, he does come across as being Hugh Hefner and being larger than life. Um, I think that's why I like part of the, like the book. He brings something a little bit other to it. Otherwise, it would just be dour and it'd be full of Valentine Michael Smiths. I don't quite get this. I have to say, from a female point of view, I wasn't really offended at how the women were treated in the book, but. Only because I didn't really care enough to be offended. Well, that makes sense. I mean, to give you an idea of how women are treated in this book, I mean, and, you know, the the sign of the times or whatever bloody excuse you want to use, but one of the lines is, Jill tells Michael that women are to blame for 90% of rapes. That, that yeah. I actually put the book down at that point and said, no. Yeah, that is a bit much, isn't that it? That is offensive. Yeah. Even yeah. at that time, it's that's, that's mm. inexcusable. Yeah. That is offensive. So well, I do also have to point out to the only reason I read the book. I read it a couple of years ago because um, David gave it to me and said, read this and tell me what you think about it. Because I think he wanted me to tell me, it's terrible, it's a piece of crap. He was looking for somebody to get on his soapbox and tee off for, and you just happened but, to be but, the uh, one. But unfortunately, my reaction was just a bit, nah, it was all right. <laughs> I got through it. It's the book equivalent of one of those uh, chained heat movies. Okay. No, it's not even it is close no, to nowhere that. near that. Right. It's not even close to that. It <laughs> was the first thing that popped to my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got I got to draw the line on that one. I'm afraid. Okay, so one thing across <laughs> this line, you okay. shall not cross. We've talked about we've talked about the the sex the sexism and okay yes the sexism is there and I'm not going to deny that it's there but I also think that there is a cultural implication about the time that has to be t- taken into consideration. Um, I think we've talked about Jubal, who I we're going to d- agree to disagree on that one. In that, uh, well, actually, no, we won't agree to disagree. You're just wrong. Um, <laughs> what exactly am I wrong about? He's a good character. No. He actually brings a lot. He bring, as I said, he brings a lot more. His large and life personality actually elevates the book because instead of it just being dour, um, specifically Valentine Michael Smith centric, um, he brings in uh, a broader sense of humour. Um, a what? A sense of humour. Jubal Hirsch is a funny character. <laughs> oh my god. It's as funny as an eye into the face. Yeah, but that's just a difference of opinion. You just don't you, you don't think he's funny, I do. That doesn't oh, mean okay. it. Yeah. Right, fair enough. Um but we haven't actually talked about Valentine Michael Smith himself. We've sort of mentioned what he does towards the end. Yeah. Um Well basically basically uh he starts off quite interesting. Sort of when you say when you say interesting, we, we should clarify something. He, it's the first third of the book, he makes one when he basically does nothing. He, ba- <laughs> he, ba- he has one scene with a nurse at the start where she accidentally, because she's not meant to actually see him, yeah, um, runs into him, and then it's all we, the next we hear of him. It's through um, you know wiretaps and so you things until his eventual. The concept of him is quite interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I like the idea of him. Mm. I mean, the, the, the last survivor of the Mars expedition and mm. trained by the Martian, you know, old ones, mm. and, or the older ones, or whatever. The old ones, they call Yeah, the old ones, yeah. And all that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm cool with all that. Mm. I mean, it's very comic booky. Yeah. And then they go on the run, Starman style. Mm-hmm. I'm cool with that as well. Yep. Until Jubal shows up. <laughs> so basically, your whole problem with the book is not that, you know, the the world, the writing, the concepts, no, the, the characters. Writing, it the seems, to be, is, is it seems to be just, I don't like Jubal. No. That seems to be the no, basis no, no. of your whole argument. But it suffers from a, a fundamental storytelling problem. I mean, it's it doesn't really know whether it's satire or not. It's I so, think it knows fully well that it's satire. It's, it's, it's so inconsistent, though. Sometimes it tries to be deadly serious. I mean, Jubal... You say he's, he's funny, mm. but half the time whether I don't actually don't know whether he's serious. And it's like he, he spouts all this belief and all these ideas. Mm. And it's like, is he joking at this point? I'm not too sure. Because yeah, does, he actually believe, does he actually believe what he's saying? No, he doesn't. It sounds like he's just That's saying it because thing. the girls are there. It's like, well, I'm yes, going to no, the girls. He doesn't... Shuffles out in his pyjamas and it's, you know, it's like, well... He doesn't actually he's all believe my babes. a lot of Let's what he's saying. This guy. I've, got this, I've got this blank slate dude mm. who knows nothing. Mm. Let me impart all of my knowledge. And I'm not saying he's not knowledgeable. I mean, he's mm. obviously a very smart and intelligent man. And, yeah. and just like Highland himself. I mean, mm. I've no doubt that Highland himself is a, would be an interesting guy. Mm. But he basically takes this blank slate being mm-hmm. and indoctrinates him and all of his beliefs and mm. forces himself upon the guy. Mm. Totally ruins him because he then goes off, you know, and, and finds the the Fosterites mm-hmm. and decides, okay, well, <clears throat> to get to get across my message of we all have to love each other, which you know, by the way, the Beatles summed it up pretty easily and just you know, all you need is love. Three minutes but how long instead after- of a. You know, a huge, boring book to do it. He <laughs> said the Beatles also did it uh, six years after this book was written. After yeah, they, several. So, after several. So yeah, they clearly read the so, book after and, so, and said, "Okay, we can do this a lot easier." <laughs> All you need is love, instead of you know a hundred thousand words of Dubell's. Hey, I'm pretty good. And how many songs <laughs> did it take them to get to that stage? Yeah, but all the early ones were like, you know, baby, you can ride my car. Exactly. <laughs> you know, what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, but getting back to Valentin Michael Smith here, which is my original it's point. It's drive your car, sorry. No, 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 no. Not really. Um, actually, <laughs> ride my car. <laughs> the Beatles sing Stranger in a Strange Land. Um, Out of our dreams, it is about car. <laughs> in the, the backseat, baby. <laughs> Which, none of which are Beatles songs, but... No. <laughs> yeah, but they're funny. Stop, stop shouting Beatles lyrics at me. <laughs> anyway, so basically, so he finds that he, he, he discovers... So he's, you know, all we need is love. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. I've got nothing yeah. wrong with that as a, as, you know, as a saying and a belief. Does finds the Fosterites, who are basically the Scientologists, who are ridiculously over the top. So could the Fosterites therefore actually be a direct response to, to Scientology? Scientology. As they we saw be. in uh, last, oh, yeah, as we saw in the last Dust Jacket, yeah. with um, Alfred Bester's response to Scientology, yeah. obviously a lot of the science fiction writers had mm. their views on what Scientology was, and a lot of them obviously wrote responses. So maybe that's what the Foster. Would Scientologists is. actually establish at this point, or yes, still Dianetics? Uh, I think that would have been established by this point. By sixty one. Sixty one. Certainly, it would have been a small movement, I would assume, but yeah. certainly one that was. Well, Tom Cruise hasn't been born yet. Yeah. Neither had John Travolta. Actually, he probably had. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, by 61 he would have, yeah. But he probably wasn't a Scientologist just yet. Anyway, so he finds the Fosterites yep. and decides, okay, well, obviously my just preaching to the people that love is all you need is not going to work. I've got to put on a show. Yeah. 
And so there becomes this manipulator, takes all of Jubal's teachings mm -hmm. and combines with the Fosterite uh, dogma, I suppose. Yep. And then becomes a showman. Yep. And the complete and opposite of what he should have been from the start, which is... But that, isn't that part of the point? That ultimately what he becomes is the very thing that he should not have become in the first place? Yeah, but then, he, he sort of, but then gets, by the he end... He gets corrupted by the... I've got nothing wrong with that. Yeah. As part of his journey, that's totally fine with me, right? Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, it, it happens. The hero's journey, essentially. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, he starts off pretty plain and simple, learns some things, goes off on a journey of you know knowledge, hmm. dances with the dark side a little. If I can throw in a Star Wars analogy there, a bit of bit of Luke there. I like that dances with the dark side. Yeah, and then uh, by the power moonlight. And then, but then, <laughs> so unbelievably, mm -hmm. by the end. He then, of course, dies mm -hmm. because it's all you know a big Jesus parable. Yep. Yeah, the Messiah sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then Jubal takes over. Jubal takes over. So you can't find a parallel. Nothing's learnt. You can't find a parallel with that in any book over the past two thousand years. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that they're good books. <laughs> yeah. Although that that, 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 that except, except for that, that good book. <laughs> what now? <laughs> but isn't that how? People learn. They learn something from one person. They then pick up something from somewhere else, pick mm. up something from somewhere else, mm. and so on. And then develop their own beliefs by absorbing knowledge and then sorting out knowledge. And that's that's a big part of what Valentine Michael Smith goes through. Yeah. Mm. He picks up the knowledge from the people he meets mm. when he's first yep. um, on Earth, plus the knowledge of the people from Mars that he's grown up with. Mm -hmm. Then Jubal comes in, and I think Jubal actually plays a pivotal role in teaching him something other than what he's encountered. Mm. And Jubal is Jubal is pretty free-thinking, and I think that um, by encountering Jubal, Valentine Michael Smith learns to think for himself. Mm. He learns to sort of start, you know, disseminating the knowledge that he gets. He doesn't think for and himself, coming up he with thinks his for own Jubal. Yeah, he thinks for himself. He thinks for himself. Because then, he, yeah. as you say, then he goes off, he learns from the Fosterites, he learns from the carnival that but he becomes part of. everything he does is what Jubal would um, do anyway. If Jubal had magical powers, that's what he would do. I disagree with that, because then Jubal actually comes around to Michael's way of thinking, way of thinking by yeah. by the end of the book. So, mm. and and then takes over as a disciple to spread the word. But the word he's spreading is the word of Valentine Michael Smith. It's not his word. His his thoughts have changed as the book has progressed as well. Mm. So I think um, I, yeah, I, said, oh, I don't see that. But that's just a sign of Jubal's intelligence. You know, seeing the way that the world was going and realizing that in order to survive. He um, needs to go with it, and it's possibly a better alternative to the one that the Secretary General, mm. with his you know double dealing and um, manipulations and deceit, was actually setting up. I'm not denying Jubal's intelligence. I'm not saying you are. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm, just say, I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying that that's. But as a as a response to your comment about him being um, sort of forced into it, well, no, that it could to mm. you know take the. And he's intelligent further. Mm. It's also him seeing the way that the world is going, and realizing that he could either just effectively choose possibly the, the lesser of two evils. So that, so that goes against but, everything that happens when he's first introduced. I mean, he's he's living on his on his compound with his beautiful babes, mm. of, you know, all around him, mm. refusing to to bow down to the the common belief, which is the general's idea of how mm. the world should work. But then, isn't so then that why part... by the end does he then suddenly decide? Okay, well. If I want to live, I better start, you know, believing I, in what they're saying. Well, I actually disagree that that's what he thinks. I think he has actually come around to accepting 
Valentine's way of thinking and Valentine's teaching. I actually think he does adopt that as as his own, and that's and and he's prepared. Yeah, he's been properly prepared. He's already a three a free thinking individual. Mm. Um, and I think that he, yeah, he does actually take up those teachings himself. Mm. I don't think he does it just because it's like, ah, uh, you know, it's that's just there. I might as well do it. I actually think he has actually come to believe that. And I do think that his beliefs and Valentine Michael Smith's beliefs are actually very different by the end of the book. I don't think, I, cause, because Valentine Michael Smith has picked up things from, you know, the cult. Mm. He's picked them up from the circus. He's picked them up from multiple sources including those early teachings that Jubal has given him, which create the foundation for what Valentine Michael Smith believes, but they're not the same. Mm. Because, you know, Valentine's his own person and he has developed his own way of thinking beyond just what Jubal has taught him. And Jubal comes comes to believe in Smith's way of teaching. He comes to believe the idea that, um, you know, that we are all God and that love is the guiding force yeah. For humanity, I, I agree with everything you said about Smith. Yeah, I, I don't agree with Jubal things. I, I, I think it's all. It's just. But if Jubal, but if it's all but a con if, at the end, it's all a con, hmm. really. Yeah, like, and he just he just he says it just so he doesn't get taken out. Getting back to uh, Jubal's attitudes too, I think it's worth pointing out that he is an, an elderly Southern American man. So some of the attitudes that he comes out with uh, fit with that kind of criteria. Hmm. Yeah, but he basically just Highland anyway. Yeah, no, just but we hadn't pointed out the character. The character is an elderly Southern American man. Yeah, yeah just just one, just one, well, yeah, that's true. That is important. Um, just just one, other, just one more thing that annoys me. And then before, I mean, because clearly it's three against one. So, well, no, not really. I'm, I'm not uh, disagreeing oh, with everything you've said. I'm on just, the fence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two against one, and one abstains. <laughs> but uh, it's, I mean, what about what about poor Ben? I feel really sorry for Ben. Like, he, he appears, he's in love with Jill. Yep. yep. Jill runs off with Smith, because let's face it, he wouldn't. Yep. He's a bit of a bit of all right. <laughs> Paul, Gen- Paul Ben disappears from the story, mm. reappears again later, and it's, it's basically, now it's, well, if I want any chance with, with Jill at all, mm. I've got to learn to not be jealous, because jealous is not part of the, the movie. You're not allowed mm. to be jealous. You're yep. like, you might have sex with everybody, everything and everybody. Mm. Then finally gets to be with Jill by then not being himself anymore. So he basically has to change his fundamental beliefs. Mm. He doesn't believe what the cult is saying. Mm. He doesn't care what Smith is saying. He just wants to be with Jill. Mm. And so it changes his fundamental beliefs in order to just therefore be with Jill. Mm. Okay, the... And everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well in the first part of the book, he, the word plot device isn't quite accurate. Um, Island does give him a character a sense of being, but he, do, he is there to impart a lot of knowledge about the world and about Valentin Michael Smith's way of thinking and one of the nice things is watching his relationship with Jill and that's what that's how you introduce the world that's how you sort of really get the story going I think towards the end um, when he does reappear I think what happens is that he also be, come across with uh, first of all he's in love with, still in love with Jill after all that time it's been apart he's still in love with Jill and so he's making whatever sacrifice he feels necessary to make to still be with her mm-hmm. um, but also Again, seeing the way that the world works, and has, and and that's been firmly established right at the start. That you know, he's seen the deceit firsthand. Um, mm-hmm. He's seen, um, doing yeah, seeing the way the world works, and again choosing the lesser of two evils. Yeah, but there's 
is choosing the lesser of two evils and then going against everything that you believe. But he's going against everything he believes to be with the woman he loves. So he's being forced to do that. Well, no, it's his decision. Mm. At the end of the day, he's the one that decides to do this in order to be with Jill. It's not like the cult... She's being brainwashed. Hmm. But it's not like the cult... No, she genuinely believes what um, Valentine Michael Smith is teaching. Hmm. Uh, I I find this book scary. It's like a popular... Yes, a lot of people found this book scary. A popular culture book that that basically says that things like uh, the the Branch Davidian and, and the... Jim Jones and all that sort of stuff is actually a good thing. Or it could if, be only, so if only you're willing to listen to what they have to say, maybe, maybe it turns out they're actually right. Or maybe he's saying, listen to what they're saying and decide for yourself. Also, another thing I should be pointing out is that this book was highly controversial upon its release, and I believe it was actually banned in Australia for quite a while. It was banned um, in a few places, yeah. Um, really? Yeah. Um, because for the, surprised it was for the very China. things that um, Dave was, has actually said, you know, it's... Well, interestingly enough, it was actually also condemned mm. as a pro-communist book. Also, they would um, at, in '61 they would have just come up, you know, out of the yoke of World War Two and the extreme fascism that was experienced during that, and also the rise of communism. Well, sorry, not the rise of communism, but um, the implementation of the Cold War, in which guys like Stalin and Khrushchev were seen as the enemy anyway. So it's probably a combination of the two. Yeah, yeah. I also think that there's another aspect of the times in relation to this book, and that's um, the idea of McCarthyism and you know the, the belief in the 50s that everybody had to think the same way and act the same way and yeah. be the same way. Mm-hmm. And then Highland's come along and written a book that says, no, you should be thinking for yourself. You should be you know, free-loving and you know, everybody is God and um, nobody yeah, really the, dies. And The only way to become well, God is to understand Martian language, which is kind of odd. You don't grok Martian language? <laughs> nobody nobody groks the Martian Well, there was language. a belief in Christianity that the only way that you could understand it was to know Latin. You know, it's not exactly it's not exactly like there's it's unprecedented that sort of belief. But yeah, um, true. yeah, so you can sort of see too that why this book would be deemed as a threat to a lot of people. Hmm. Okay, well that's uh that's all been fascinating and uh, you still haven't convinced me otherwise. But some oh, valid no, points. I'm the whole point is not to convince you. Um, it's just to tell you that, you know. You're wrong. <laughs> the third time now. It was uh, third time too many, probably. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was, it was good. It was it was good to hear the other side, and uh, yeah, some valid things were said. So just to end on a, a more a more positive note from me before just before I give my rating, um, I quite like uh, the scene where Smith's at the bottom of the pool, mm. and the way he discovers thinking. the. The, his power for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's that was quite cool. Mm. And and Smith himself, in terms of his powers and stuff, mm. are quite groovy. Um, I've, I've, read, I've read a couple of reviews where people complain. It's like, well, it doesn't really make much sense that he can do what he do, does just because he was taught by the old ones. But really, who cares? Yeah. So the humans in um, stars can teleport just the power of their mind. I mean, it's never really and explained have, scientifically and, how and it's have, done. You know, a cybernetic augmentation that allows yeah. them to run really fast. So. Anyway, so, so yeah, so, he, so his powers are pretty cool and um, and uh, it's a shame the, bo- the movie wasn't made many, many years ago because you could have had uh, David Bowie playing. That would have been mad <laughs> in the Man of Felt Earth sort of deal. So, yeah, so the pool's quite cool. And the uh, the overall uh, message of the book that the, all you need is love is, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's true. I actually all, I think... need, all I need is love. Yeah, I think there's a little bit more to the message than that as well. I think you're quite shortchanging it a little bit there. No, that is the think, only message. I think the important part here, more than anything else, is the thou art God mm. comment that uh, seems to be the mantra of everybody. I am God. 
which then but we're all taken gone. over by Russell no, T Davies for his run on Doctor Who. So. Exactly, just me, just you. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think the we are all gods part of it is actually the more important message than just all you need is love. Do 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 do. <laughs> so has anybody got anything else to say before you go to the grades? I will probably take the point that it doesn't need to be as high on the list. It, I, I do I do think there are far better um, science fiction books um, written, but yeah, I just want to make that point that you know, whilst okay. I love it, it's not it shouldn't be as high as it is on that list. So rating Luke, uh, I give it four Luke's. Richard, um, I think uh, it's the message in the book is is very interesting. Uh, the fact that it predates. Uh, a movement that espouses those beliefs, I think, is absolutely amazing. I do believe it's a very flawed novel. Um, I would give it three Lukes. You've shot him. I thought you loved the thing. No. Oh, okay, cool. Wow. That thought it was kind of a... Well, how is it flawed? Well, I think the um, depiction of women Mm. is horribly flawed. Uh, The 90% of rapes comment is an abomination. Uh, And I do believe that it is far too long and that it does get a little bit sidetracked, especially the the carnival period, Mm. like after he's left Jubal for the first time. I think there's a a whole section of the book there which almost completely lost my interest. Mm. And it was a bit of a struggle to get through that to try and continue to get to the end. So you'd go with the original version? The original version had that section as well. Mm. Yeah, but it was 60,000 words shorter. Mm. Yeah, but like we said, it's 60,000 just descriptions. Yeah. Yeah, look, very possibly. I, I only read the the full version of the book, so I, I don't really know what the, the originally published version was like. Because yeah, even though the um, it still had the full story, it may not have been as, as long to get through without all the descriptives. Yeah, yeah very possibly. Yeah, true. But it's, so, there, there are sections of the book which uh, where it does meander, mm-hmm. and a point that Luke made earlier... There is t- a little bit too much exposition in this book, mm. a little bit too much telling us things rather than showing us, and that, and to me, that lowers the point score down quite well, substantially. I can just make a point. I do think structurally it is a bit flawed. Yeah, jumping around as it does, and jumping from point of view mm. as it does. Okay, and also I think it probably without the hippie movement, it might not be the cult favorite book that it is today. I oh, think I that I because a movement started separate from this book and then somebody realised that this book was espousing those beliefs years earlier and then the hippie movement picked up on the book I think without without that it probably wouldn't be quite the level of that it is today of respect that it has Crystal? When I first read it um, partway through it I, I quite enjoyed the let's explore humanity aspect of it let's have a let's put human culture under the microscope aspect but in keeping with my sitting on the fence stance here I'll give it two and a half Luke's I, I, I read it it was okay but I never intended to read it again Fair enough, well as I said at the start um, it's the, I originally went to negative um, because yeah that 90% rapes comment for me was the end and uh, I only continued to read it because that's how I roll it's, it's, I've got to finish it once I've started I've got to finish it so yeah So, but but now after listening to you guys um, it's Luke you had some very valid points and uh, uh, Richard of your points as well it was it was, uh, it was very interesting um, I'm going to bump it to half a loop I'm going to give it half a loop because it is incredibly flawed and I hate it 
and will never ever read it again. <laughs> but uh, I can see some of what you're saying. Yeah. And uh, it's obviously an important book. Mm. Um, it's just it's that's bad, <laughs> as, uh, <laughs> as my rating shows. Can I, can I just reiterate that I was offended by the rape comment as well, but for some reason I'd totally forgotten about it. That's good. There's no point in dwelling on mm. the negativity as mm. exactly. Yeah. But uh, interesting. A, a, a myriad of uh, scores. Mm. That was pretty good. Two books in a row where the main characters go under the subjects. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. <laughs> I'd be interested to hear from anybody that actually read the book maybe in the 60s or early 70s yeah. to see what their reaction was at the time. One of our uh, listeners, uh, Nick, actually sent us through a recorded review uh, interview with Dave about um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was actually quite insightful. And uh, yeah, if there's anybody out there that read Stranger in a Strange Land back in the day, please get in touch with us because we'd love to hear from you and see what your reaction was reading the book, maybe a little bit closer to the times that the book influenced. That is a very valid point. Hmm. So like we said, we were all born after that period. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I'm old, so I'm kind of old. Two decades. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, that is a very valid point. Maybe I just missed the point completely. I'm willing to accept that I could possibly be wrong, but I'm not, because I never am. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've said it three times. You really want me to don't, say, it don't say it Don't say it again. So yeah, so if you uh, if you did read the book, let us know uh, at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, right. Let's uh, move on to our war room. NCP's top five pop culture vehicles. Okay, so last, uh, last time we did a top five, it was our top five villains, and uh, although that was awesome and uh, seemed to get quite a good response, uh, I stuffed up with the, with the votes. Yeah, you That's telling, right. And uh, you Joker is turned number, out, third, number three yeah, yeah, and, over and got wrong. So this time I've, I've made sure this is 100% tricky. accurate. I, I used one of the uh, Texas polling machines. I guarantee it's right. <laughs> Those things never never stuff up. Absolutely not. It's uh, it's all good. So I'm going to start from the bottom and move our way up to number one. And moving on up. Moving on up. Moving on up. Thank you. I was waiting for somebody moving to pop on into on that. That's <laughs> right. It's the Glen... musical edition of No Culture Podcast. Take it back to Glenmore. That's far better. <laughs> and uh, funnily enough, our, t- our number five is actually a tie. So we've actually got top six. <laughs> How's that? Uh, so, t- for number five, we had a tie between the Liberator from Blake Seven and the Millennium Falcon from You Know Where. Tell us even more. Star Wars. Never heard of it. <laughs> what is this Millennium Falcon of which you speak? <laughs> it's actually kind of interesting that that the tie is um, two spaceships. Mm. Yeah. Um, two kick butt spaceships. I suppose we should talk about the difference. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's talk about the, the Liberator. Okay. Um, Liberator is from Blake Seven. It's the ship that. Where that Blake and the crew discover in space when they're still on the prison transport in the second episode, if I remember, my memory serves correct. me correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are charged with charged by the Federation, and that's what it's called in Blake 7, just to avoid some confusion. The dictatorship is called the Federation. Um, by the Federation to board the ship, um, take it over for the Federation's purposes. However, things don't go according to plan, and yeah. Blake and the Blake Avon and the crew manage to steal it. Because the original, the original people that get sent on there all die, all die because mm-hmm. um, of the defence systems, mm. and so they get sent on as criminals, yeah. as canaries, 
and uh, sure enough, they overcome the defences because yeah. yep. uh, Blake refuses to accept the fact that he's, never send Blake he's and Avon right. on a on a on a mission. Because <laughs> and away Blake, they go. Blake will inspire everyone, and Avon will do, Avon will betray everyone. Um, the Liberator is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. It's unbelievably powerful. Mm. Has its own AI, mm. um, which I Zen is the name. Yeah, of the AI, Zen. Which, and then they incorporate Orac, the computer, towards the end of the series. Then the first series. Yeah, mm. and just it just major but one of the things that I love about it is that the ship itself is a mystery yeah yeah. Um, and they but you never actually to... find out complete story do you no you don't. Yeah. you don't you never find out who you never find out who um... I actually know in the, at the start of the second series there are hints as to you, you, you meet the culture who might have um, designed and built it mm. yeah but you never actually learn very much. You never much know for it. sure. Yeah. You never know for sure. You and you see, and you find you, you find its designation. Hmm. Um, find out its designation at some point. So that indicates there's previous ships yeah. in the line. Hmm. Yeah. Well, but, you meet uh, you see one of them. Yeah. You see. Yeah. You see there is another Liberator floating out. Yeah. yeah. I won't spoil it. And plus, it looks awesome. And that's another thing. It's the, a the, wonderful the, design. Yeah. yeah. There's uh, a, another story that is actually a, a reversed microphone. Yeah. Which is <laughs> <laughs> cool. But I also just love the way that it's introduced as well. Yeah. It's not just introduced as another ship that they find. Isn't the the shot is. Um, specifically under under the ship itself with a bit of backlighting from whatever sun is nearby to give it that sense of awe and importance that this is something magnificent that we've not seen before. Mm. Um, and from then on, it just becomes one of the, in my opinion, one of the best um, starships or spaceships ever created for science fiction. Yep, well, it's... Uh, it was on, I think... I think it was on three out of four of the lists. Hmm. I think. Well, I've so. never seen Blake 7, but as opposed to the Bucket of Bolts, I'm sound, it's sounding like a much better uh, ship, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, it's more powerful we'll than to, uh, I mean, sorry, there's no I, denying that. But yeah, we're, we're going to have to uh, get you into Blake 7. A liberated sorry, versus Enterprise. I've been too busy Enterprise. watching Babylon 5 and all the Star Trek series. Yeah, that's and, fair enough. That's yeah. fair enough, but... Eventually, you will have to get to Blake 7, and we'll be happy to introduce you to it. Well, luckily enough, us three have seen Blake 7, and yes. uh, yeah, it's awesome. Yep. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, and I also like the fact it's just, I mean, it's obviously the special effects budget wasn't exactly the greatest, yeah. but, uh, but it still manages to look awesome. But isn't that a try? Isn't yeah. that a try then for the BBC yeah. model making? De- another try yes. for the BBC model making department? But they, they can obviously work so hard. Those yeah. that team, it's just yeah. unbelievable. I mean, yeah. the early Doctor Who. Yeah. I mean, some of, I mean, some of the the sets and stuff are pretty ordinary, but they, yeah. they had limited time and money. Yeah. Fortunately, the always looked awesome. fortunately, every second episode of Doctor Who and Blake Seven is yeah. set in the BBC yeah. quarry. <laughs> in the quarry, so, yeah. <laughs> it's in, not so, so bad. Star Trek, Trek, Star Trek had more money, and that was always in the quarry. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's a triumph of their creativity. They, yeah. they worked with and the production design and production design to look. make it look great to begin with, mm. so that it overcomes the mm. poor special effects. The theme of the mysterious ship from an unknown origin is that a familiar one. That's obviously. Continued over into other science fiction mm. areas. Yeah, well, a, yes, lot of, yeah. a lot of people have you know, copied Used it since. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but here it also works because the ship itself becomes the seventh member of the crew. That's yeah. why yeah. Blake 7, that's yeah. because it's Blake and the other. I'd say, I'd say, I'd say its most modern equivalent would be Moya from Farscape, I'd say. Probably. A little bit. Um, yeah, but Moya's sentient. But Moya's sentient and has um, the mystery around Moya isn't as. Compelling. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It's certainly not as compelling. sucks, I'm going to say it right here and now. The ship in Stargate Universe is, is a bit of a mystery as well. Oh, yeah, the universe. It's, it's, yeah, um, Stargate it's, Universe ship. Yeah, yeah. by the ancients. So, the equal fifth place, we also had, of course, the Falcons. So, it's the ship of every young boy's fantasies. I mean, it's... Absolutely. It's, uh, magnificent design. Uh, it's I, the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy. That's right. 
Kessel Run and less than, less than 12, 12 parsecs. 12 parsecs, which of course we all famously know is actually distance and not time. But that's all right. That's fine. Um, it's yeah. It's just it's magnificent, and uh, it's, I'm surprised that it's fifth on the list. I've got to be I've got to be honest with you. That's probably because of me. Um, and I put the Liberator over the Millennium Falcon because the Liberator has a lot more mystery to it. Yeah. Um, the, don't get me wrong. The Millennium Falcon is a cool ship. And it's and the reason why it's a cool ship is because it is so run down. Yeah. And Han pushes it for all it's worth. And, it, you know, really the only reason they succeed sometimes is because the Millennium Falcon is as good as it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so effectively the, the equivalent of that old car that the owner just keeps working on to keep that engine ticket yeah. over. Uh, as, as it's in motion, they still have to tweak it. Yeah. Even, even the princess gets out a screwdriver. Yeah, everybody's got to work on the Millennium Falcon to keep it going. <laughs> this one goes there. That one goes there. <laughs> and one in a one in a uh, a card game, and uh, it's, just, it's 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 iconic. And it's also one of the great things about it. I think is that it is a ship that is reflective of its owner. Yeah. The Millennium Falcon is very much a reflection of Han Solo and Han Solo's personality, and mm. that sort of. It's the ship that a sort of roguish scoundrel should have the fact that he wins it in a card game against yeah. one of his best friends i mean everything about that vehicle just speaks to the character that mm. that, that owns it and that's 100%. one of the great it's, things that, about the vehicle it's the hot rod yeah of, uh, the Star exactly Wars right universe. yeah it's just i actually I, I always wondered why in the scene in return of the jedi where lando's flying it through the tunnels which is magnificent yeah and uh when the radar dish gets knocked off yep. i was always surprised why there wasn't a cut to to han on endor with a sort of, sort of sudden, like, twinge in the force sort of deal. It's like, what just happened? Falcon! Because Han had, in previous scenes, before that, Han has gone, you are going to look after my ship, yeah, right? Yeah. There's not going to... Yeah, you're going to bring it back in one scratch. Yeah. Maybe it was even a little more cheesier. Than, but, uh, I always wonder why that scene wasn't in there. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, it's iconic. It's, 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 a, it's a, a triumph of design. I mean, it's basically just a circle with some bits on the end. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the turrets at the opposite right. end to each mm-hmm. other. I always wondered, yeah. though, if the gun's pointing out into what sort of like space and they're firing, yeah. there's got to be some sort of shield or something, doesn't it? They get sucked out that little hole where the gun's pointing out. Don't know. Don't know. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'm overthinking it, obviously. Yeah, look, it's one of the okay. really one of the standards of science fiction, isn't <laughs> it? Got your shields, but you can still shoot through your shields. Forget that. It's also Star Wars, and Star Wars is not exactly famous <laughs> yeah. for its, you know, uh, it's hard be, science. It's, it's hard science, or it's quantum mechanics. We'll just, we'll just so. put it down to the force, yeah. shall we? Yeah. Oh, What's, there's uh, an awesome website, Star Wars versus Star Trek, with this um, um, scientist guy. Like engineering or something, just goes just hardcore mm. works out the real world physics of mm. of the two universes and what would happen if they actually did <laughs> yeah. there and stuff. And of course, Star Wars just wipes the floor with them. Of course, <laughs> just it's unbelievable just how powerful this is. But yeah. another 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 part of the design that I really love about the Falcon is the cockpit. Mm. It's not. Um, and it's, it's on the side. Yeah, yeah it's not centred to the... It's not, cent- it's not yeah. central, which I thought, we always yeah. thought was pretty cool. I think, yeah, the, the really, at the end of the day, the great thing about the Millennium Falcon is that in a series of movies full of just absolutely brilliant designs, yeah. like absolutely brilliant spaceship designs, city designs, everything, the Millennium Falcon still stands out head and shoulders above all the other vehicles. Yes. Well, I wouldn't agree there, which, as we'll learn as we continue on. <laughs> okay, so number four, we have Back to the Future's DeLorean. Now, the DeLorean, of course, is a real-world car, mm. uh, but in the Back to the Future films, it is transformed into the time machine, uh, Doc Brown's time machine, and uh, it is magnificent. Mm. Uh, it would first it first appears on screen uh, when the, the truck gate opens up and you've got the vents 
and the 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 liquid nitrogen or whatever the hell it is mist coming out yeah. and comes on down and it's just Marty's reaction is the audience's mm. reaction and it's just <laughs> unbelievably it's cool. such a nice shot funnily enough that was playing on Channel 10 last night and I was actually in the fish and chip shop and happened to be on the TV and I was watching it waiting for my dinner okay good and just watching that moment you describe but also that nice shot of after it comes down and it's still smoking of going from Marty and panning across the front of the car yeah to where um, Doc Brown lifts up the car, uh, lifts up the door, and comes out. The, Galvin, the yeah. um, Alan Silvestri's music, giving that that nice sense of again, I guess, with the Liberator as well. That nice sense of this is something that's important, yeah, um, or inspiring, or inspiring, yeah. and is integral to what is happening. Like it's not just treated as a trivial um, mm. piece of machinery. Yeah, it's almost like it's a character. It's a character of its own. Yeah, especially later on when it, mm. it stops stops working mm. and Muddy's almost. Begging for it to start up, and yep. it's like, ah, okay, well, right, I'll, mm. I'll start working. And it's, just, it's, it's brilliant stuff, and it's and it looks futuristic in Marty's time, so mm. in 1985. So you can understand their reaction when it goes back, mm-hmm. and it's like, it's yeah. So, so of course, the DeLorean is just magnificent. I mean, and one of the other things that I like about it is it's a time machine. So, it's but not know, just the time machine, as the end of the first film shows us. That's, that's right. right. So it eventually flies. So just Where like we're, we're saying, going, we don't need roads. <laughs> Thank you. So just like we were saying in uh, our previous episode where we were talking about science fiction predictions that haven't come true yet, so inventions that we wanted to come true, is one of Richo's, the flying car. Yep, absolutely. And who wouldn't want a DeLorean that flies? Yeah. And more and importantly, a, a time-travelling time DeLorean, DeLorean right. that and flies. one of my favourite science fiction themes is time travel, so it's, it basically encompasses everything. So. so how did this one not get to number one? Well, funnily well, um, enough, I'm the only one who voted for it. So how did we beat beat the Millennium Falcon and the Liberator then? Because you voted it at number one. So, anyway. (laughs) Hang on a second. I'm sorry. The Joker at number three. I swear to you the... What was that about Texas uh, voting again? I swear to you the voting was done well. So basically... So yes, I actually own a couple of uh, DeLorean models. And uh, and it's a very interesting thing is uh, at our wedding, uh, Crystal and I's wedding, um, our gifts, uh, the gifts that you put on the tables, I can't remember what the word is. um, Bombonieri. Yeah, Bombonieri. Uh, for all the boys, all the male guests got a Matchbox car, and uh, I let slip during the night that one of the cars was a DeLorean, not the time machine version of it, but still a DeLorean. And you should have seen the reaction. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Everybody started searching through their cars. Nobody cared about the other ones, no matter how cool they were. They wanted that DeLorean, and it turned out that the DeLorean wasn't there. It was actually I didn't. at I home got, with me. I got, <laughs> I got one that looked like a, a, a cross between Hot Rod from Transformers and the Batmobile, so I was quite happy with my. Oh, well, there you go. That's cool. So uh, the reaction was was very interesting. That's just how much people love the DeLorean. Okay, so moving on to number three, the Batmobile. Ah, the Batmobile. Which one? Well, yeah, I should do. I will mention that now. In Luke's list, so Luke voted for the Batmobile, and he actually specifically said the Tim Burton version. Yeah, and somebody else, I believe, was uh, Richo also voted for it, but didn't specify which one. Really, any Batmobile is awesome. (laughs) Well, I don't know the Tumbler. There's there's a couple. There's okay. There's a couple. Pretty ordinary. The Batman Forever, 1995 design is atrocious. It looks unfinished. Yep. And you know the fin coming out the back and the out the fin side. The fin at the back is just awful. I, that just uh, that was. The as, whole as, as, as I said, I, I kept looking at going. This isn't this isn't a car. This is you know the skeleton of a car. Yeah. Um, and the Batman and Robin um, Batmobile, whilst trying to harken back to the '89 version, still it didn't really do a lot in the film. Hmm. Like he, he, it could have just been any car, and it wouldn't matter. The problem with the comic book Batmobile I, that I have is that 
pretty much after 1965, where, where before that you've had you know the cool Dick Sprang, Jerry Robinson um, design Batmobile with the with the bat's head on the front and and which look, looks more looks, looks cool from a 40s perspective. Huh. Looks a bit dated now, of course. Um, that's quite nice. After that, in the comic books, no artist could decide really what the Batmobile looked like, in my opinion. So you got every issue there was about five different Batmobile designs, and that. Yeah. Um, so mine is and some I was good, like, some bad. I like the 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 '66 Batmobile version. I think it's a nice it's nice the design does what it does needs to do for that particular version of Batman. Oh, the little cockpits. The little cockpits <laughs> and you know the the the, the siren at the top and yeah. the sort of the bubble like um, windshields. But I've got to go with the '89. It's yeah. a very nice design. It's sleek. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks you know, cool running around the streets, but it has the added benefit of all those tricks, which is what the Batmobile is meant to have, you know, guns coming out the side to blast open doors, the shields, the... What about, this, what about the... I mean, I, although I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, mm-hmm. what about the ridiculous shooting the cable thing to do a... To do the sharp turn. To do the sharp turn. That's actually very clever. Mm. Oh, come on. But look, think, <laughs> look, at the end of the day, the great thing about the Batmobile is that... It's it's really every boy's dream. It's a car full of gadgets yeah. that enables you to do just about everything and has a big jet engine thing out the back. It's it's funny actually. I mean, so you both voted for the Batmobile, but not for the Aston Martin because the Aston, which is essentially the same thing, but just the, doesn't look as the, cool. The Aston Martin though doesn't. It's a beautiful car, and look, I would love to own an Aston Martin of that era. It's just magnificent vehicle. Tricks or not? Yeah, but. The Batmobile is one of the defining aspects of Batman's character. Um, With the Aston Martin, it's a beautiful car and it's great in the Bond films that it's in, but Bond has a different car you know, yeah. sort of each every every so second film. So get to that ridiculous invisible one. Oh. Yeah, that, you have the one that goes. Did he steal Wonder Woman's car? Yeah. Well, no, it has, it's just you know, it, it I mean, cloaks or something. The, yeah, the, 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 the line is uh, Aston Martin call this a vanquish. We call this the vanish. So to get it's another Aston Martin, but not a very yeah. interesting one. But also, I mean, he has the you know, the very famous Lotus that goes underwater yeah, yeah. and things like that. Whereas Batman, despite you know changes in designs from different artists and things like that, Batman has one car. It's the Batmobile. The one common element in it is that it's full of cool gadgets that enable Batman to do what Batman does. Mm. Um, And that's what I think makes it stand out above the Aston Martin or any of the other Bond cars. It is awesome. It's basically the ultimate gadget vehicle, the Batmobile. Whether it's the 66 uh, TV version um, or the 89 movie version. Mm. You know, it, it fulfills that role, you know, gadgets everywhere and cool jet engines on the back. <laughs> okay, so moving on to number two, second place, the Enterprise D. Very specifically, the Enterprise D. Yep. Well, I, I picked, well, my initial pick was just the Enterprise, but when I was asked to make it specific, I said D, I think, because it's just the one I'm most familiar with. It's, that's, it's, it's bigger than Kirk's Enterprise, it's got more comfort facilities on it. It it's more practical. Comes mm. Off. Mm. So why did you pick it in terms of the vehicle itself? Because it's just a place I'd like to be. <laughs> <laughs> it was Brilliant. one of your sci-fi predictions it that you was, want to come true. It was the, it was the starship. Yeah, it's just, mm. if, if, if you could visit a place that doesn't exist yet, mm. the Enterprise would be it. Mm. You get beamed up there. You, it, it's, you can look out the window and, mm. and see the Earth. It's very much... The Federation. Visit the holodecks. Yeah. It's very much the Federation in 
starship form. Mm. You know, it's it's different races all working together on the one ship. It's state of the art. It can it's do all these clean. wonderful things. Yep, always you know. clean. Um, you know, and it, it it can go to war if it needs to, but it's primarily a ship of exploration. And, and that's... it's comfortable. Have you seen the state rooms? It's like your own apartment in there. You don't you don't have to share a room with four other people and sleep in a cot. And how comfy Do does... You, but you don't share a room with four other people and sleep in a cot, either. Well, I'm saying as... It, you only share a room with me. I'm saying as opposed to earlier versions. <laughs> <laughs> well, have to and how comfy does... Room. How comfy does... Do those chairs look in the, on, the, on the bridge? Yeah. I don't think you can sleep they do look in those. Awesome. Yeah. They do look awesome. Um, so why'd you pick it? I, I, first of all, it's the Enterprise. Yeah. It is the most iconic... It has become the most iconic spaceship. But I'm very surprised... I'll be admitted, I'm very surprised that you didn't choose A. A um, couple of reasons. Um, the Enterprise, well, A is from the motion picture, and yeah. let's face fact, the motion picture is not very good. Um, but hey. He has a good point. No, it's better than a Stranger in a Strange Land. No. <laughs> um, They're both very long and drawn out. <laughs> well, the original, I mean, the, the, even the, the non-letter designated one, so the, mm. the Constitution yeah, original. Con- yeah. so um, I think that the Enterprise D is a better design. It's more sleeker. Mm. It, uh, if you look at it, it looks, it looks extra much like it could actually fly through space a lot more comfortably than the, the original series one. But the, there's no resistance. It doesn't matter how sleek it is. It could be a box and mm-hmm. still fly just as easily. But it looks better, I think. I, I, think, <laughs> I actually think it's a better design. Okay. I'm not trying to start arguing with you. It's just that as, as, Yes, you are. As and that, I, I that, like you for that. that science fiction thing where it's like, well, it's got to look sleek and fast and, and groovy. I, 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 think, really, I think it's it a better... Be, it could I, be a chihuahua and still fly through space. It's exactly the same. I think it's a ball cube. Yeah. I think it's a Oh, yeah, exactly. Like the ball cube. Thank you very much. I think it's a better design. Okay. It's a better design. Uh, it's gone sli- slightly more angular in the entire ship as opposed to just the source section. Um, it I actually think the E is the best design. I haven't seen first contact in a while. So. prettier, but I'm e's more awesome. familiar with the with the D. E looks like a battleship. E, e looks like a ship, whereas D looks like a place you could live comfortably. Mm. <laughs> You're obsessed with living on the Enterprise. I think and uh, a lot of reasons why I chose it was purely for what Crystal yeah. said. Um, you know, and what Dave said. You know, it looks like a, a nice place to live. The Federation effectively in one place. Yeah, um, I might but, change some of the beige decor though. <laughs> some of the, some of the, yeah, but I, the, some of the interior, the, the design, the interior of the design of the Enterprise has never really looked cool until first contact yeah. when they t- actually turn the lights out. He <laughs> <laughs> um, draws a light in the sand. Uh, but here, uh, no further. <laughs> I love first contact. Also. First contact's great. Stupid yeah. um, <laughs> But yeah, like, it, it's it's. In terms of the Enterprise, did just specifically that version um, for that for those reasons. But the Enterprise, it is bar none the best starship ever created. I think mm. um, it, the whole idea is that it's not a battleship as such. It's not meant to be going out creating conflict. Yeah. The whole idea is that it's meant to go out and explore. Yeah. It's armed, of course, for those moments where it does need to defend itself. Which is all the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is all the time. Well, until the Defiant comes along, it is the most powerful. Hmm. Um, flagship. Hmm. Nice little ship. <laughs> little. But, um, yeah, it, the, 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 yeah. The, the, the idea behind it as well, you know, we are going to, to, we are going to go, boldly go where no man has gone before, I think, yeah. is encapsulated in no the Enterprise. Sorry, that's right, D is going where no one has gone before. <laughs> Okay, our number one, our first place by a, a huge margin. It trounced all competition. Yeah, no surprise. Voted by everybody. 
Only one person didn't vote it in the number one, and that was me. Sorry, but the DeLorean. Mm. And that is the TARDIS. Well, let's face it, who doesn't want something that's bigger on the inside? The, exactly outside? right. This, it, has a, it has its own <coughs> pool, as we discovered not long ago. This really? Is, yeah, in the, yep. in the latest season, he's talking about how their bedroom is near the pool. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> um, this is the most iconic science fiction vehicle of all time. Yeah, I love the, I love the, the, the chameleon circuit is broken, so it has to look to the point the to the yeah. point where to the point where um, the older style police boxes that are around London that you know they're they're there for, purely for tourist purposes. Yeah, you know everyone going up to them might go, "Oh my god, it's a police box from you know, the fifties or the 60s. They'll go, "It's a TARDIS." Yeah, yeah. and they'll go, it'll, it'll, and I, "I know I just got my picture taken in front of one purely because yeah. it's a TARDIS." Yeah. Um, but it's not just a time machine, which part, um, which is also one of the great things about it. But it's a spaceship as well. It travels through both time and space. It can go anywhere. Time and relative dimensions in, in space. space. Yep. Exactly. Um, yeah. So once again, we have a time machine element, which mm. is you know why it's up there for me. Um, it is. It's it's iconic. Mm. Bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, and uh, it just looks it absolutely awesome. Old, mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially the. Actually, I'm a bigger fan of the um, of the. Uh, Baker version, yeah, the, 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 the hexagon sort of mm. inserts on the panels, and this, and, and then the, his slightly Jules Verne inspired, yeah, yeah, period there, and, and the, mm. the the thing that goes up in the middle mm. is the, I have no mm. idea what that is, but it looks mad, the generator or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's actually now we've now and now that we've learned that it is actually sentient, or well, has it has an element of sentience? We've, the, yeah. it's been suspected, it, particularly in the Russell T Davies era, yeah. that there was something intelligent in this in the TARDIS's computers. Uh-huh. And then in the Neil Gaiman episode, that element gets put into um, the the consciousness of a woman on another, not even another planet, another galaxy. Yeah. And the Doctor's able to meet the TARDIS for the first time, which is kind of cool. It is magnificent. Um, and then the TARDIS has he has to build a, a TARDIS himself, which is also kind of cool. <laughs> um, but it's also the... Although, funnily enough, still looks like a police box. Still looks like a police box. Why not fix the chameleon circuit? Um, but the two other things about it is it's always reflective of the Doctor himself. It, it's not exactly you know, some right. staid, stuffy personality. Yeah. Apparently it saves all the desktops, as they call it. Mm. So you can, you can go back and see the back. older ones. Mm. Okay, in, that, in that particular episode, we've discovered that actually only goes back to the, the David Tennant one. I was disappointed. I was hoping it would go back to it at a much earlier period. Yeah, I was yeah, like, it's back really, to the William Hartnell yeah, period. Yeah, the Hartnell period. That'd be cool. That would be awesome. Um, yeah, so it's always been reflective of the Doctor's highly eccentric personality, um, which is responsible to you know the TARDIS's intelligence to the Doctor himself. But like, oh, to a certain extent, the Liberator as well, it's always been that era of element of mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's not no, it's it's time or technology, but well, even the Doctor doesn't quite even the do- Doctor doesn't quite understand that. Understand what it does, and it you know. It, River Song it, understands it better than. It does. <laughs> but also the fact that he's stolen it—that's what we've discovered. Ooh, 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 it. Or, or the TARDIS has probably stolen the Doctor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's uh, it, it, there are many facets to the TARDIS that I find. I think there's actually even hints in the earlier earlier series that he's stolen it. That, or that, that he stole. I mean, he admits that he stole it. Yeah. But yeah. also that uh, that's alive. Mm. There's, 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 there's slight hints. Yeah. Because Sometimes it'll work, sometimes it won't work. Sometimes like, it turns up where it doesn't and it, want to... Yeah, it puts in places where he'll be needed. Mm. And it's, mm. it's pretty good. <laughs> One of the things I love about this, and it does go back to something we were saying earlier about the Liberator as well, is it's a wonderful uh, creative idea that the BBC production people and the, the writers have come up with. 
to cover the fact that they had no budget yeah. when they were doing Doctor Who to begin with. So they've, you know, they've thought, well, we've got no budget. There's not really not much we can do here. So let's come up with something truly bizarre and wonderful in the idea of, you know, a flying police phone booth. You know, so so that they've sort of overcome it in the most overcome their lack of a budget in the most creative way that they possibly could at the time, mm. and that's added to the iconic nature of the TARDIS. Yeah. You know, it, it's become an iconic image, as Luke said. Mm. Um, so yeah, so much like in the Liberator, where it was sort of you know, we don't really have a lot of a budget to work with here, so we've got to come up with an interesting design. Mm. Here, they've come up with a bizarre and wonderful design to to overcome that. And I think that's a a great thing about the TARDIS as well. And again, it's just getting back to another thing I said. The way that we're introduced to it as well, as well has also helped to it. Is also added to it. I think the thing about it too, and the thing about the Enterprise is, is that they're uh, instantly recognisable, even to people mm. who have never ever mm. seen the shows. Mm. It's right up there with the Superman S. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, I'm, Darth Vader's face, everybody yeah. knows. Yeah, on a table in this very house. There is actually a set of salt and pepper shakers. They're police boxes. They're not tardises. Yes, yeah, but they're, they're basically tardises. But let's face facts. You got the cause. They look like the tardis. Oh, that's a Oh, look, there's tardises everywhere around this place, and that just goes to sort of yeah show the iconic nature of the vehicle and why we've put it at number one. It deserves its top ranking. Mm. It's it's. Uh, and let's not forget one... travels through time and space. <laughs> <laughs> it does it all. Everything you'd ever want a vehicle to do is there in the town. So much story space. <laughs> that was that's my big thing. Storage space. Story space. Uh, but occasionally, it does need, occasionally it does need to jettison. <laughs> occasionally. To, um, so there were so others that they didn't quite make the cut. So I just thought I'd uh, throw out some honourable mentions there, starting with Kit, who I voted for. Um, yes. uh, Kit to me is just the ultimate car. Um, not necessarily in terms of overall vehicles, um, but yeah, it's just it's Kit. Just he's uh, he's wise cracking, take no crap from Michael sort of deal. But he's still very refined and cultured and intelligent. Clearly more it's intelligent another... than his actual driver. I, just, I wouldn't mind a car that could drive itself. <laughs> and his nemesis car. And the up. and the evil Michael Knight who has a goatee. Yeah, and he just looks but, awesome. Look, yeah, Kit's a creative name, isn't it? Car. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kit Kit is one of those, you know boys fantasy things again it's yeah. the cool sleek sports car that has its own personality with its cool, with this cool steering wheel which yeah. is actually just nothing this, like this, this, thing, this no, may no. sound strange because I actually don't drive a car I'm not really interested in automobiles in any way shape or form but isn't it like the, the ultimate male dream to have their car talk to them <laughs> so, uh, I don't next... care about talking to me I just want it to drive itself so I don't have to worry driving <laughs> through lava without the chassis being scorched <laughs> Or the rubber on the tyres melting. It Kit did that at one going, point. Uh, uh, yeah, that's because Kit is it's cool, Kit. awesome. <laughs> he has four shields. It's never mentioned, but he has shielding. He does have shielding. Um, see, he, oh, yeah, Kit unfortunately missed out this by one vote. So also missed out on one vote was uh, The Heart of Gold from Hitchhikers. Mm. My favourite bit of The Heart of Gold is the um, improbability drive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the improbability drive. And that's really awesome. what's made The Heart of Gold and, and, and a, as good a ship as it is. The, uh, the fact it's got this... Well, two things. The, the, the improbability drive and Eddie the shipboard computer. Yes. <laughs> the, the only reason I, I wouldn't like that over the Enterprise is that it can't make a decent cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do have to point out that I prefer the, uh, the book version rather than the movie version. Yeah. 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 Although the movie version's kind of cute. But, it, I mean, it doesn't make an Earl Grey the way that the Enterprise does. That's, no, that's right. 
But you do have friendly <laughs> doors. That always you wish you a, uh, wish you a good a good day with the satisfaction of a job well done. Especially, especially first thing in the morning, as as some of us know, when I'm not a really a morning person, they could get very annoying. <laughs> Thank you, the serious cybernetics marketing division. So uh, moving on, now this is like like you said before, it was the Millennium Falcon, and I was like, oh, I disagree. We'll get to that. Uh, I have the Tie Fighter. Now the Tie Fighter for me is an even better design than the Falcon in terms of it, the Empire, it's basically, just, it's basically a physical form of the Empire mm-hmm. saying, we just don't give a crap. It's a monster, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't have it, the personality, yeah, though, that the yeah, Millennium Falcon I, I, I disagree. The sound that it makes when it flies, the, the, the fact that the winds are actually the, what powers it, mm. it has, and the fact that, like I said, the Empire just doesn't care because there's, Basically, they get destroyed left, right, and yeah, center. Yeah, they, they don't have anywhere near the manoeuvrability of the Falcon as the asteroid seen in the Empire Strikes Back. Right? No, no, that's just because the pilots are crap. Your point with one thing. But look I mean, at the it design. Does, it, it does treat. They, it does show that the Empire, you know, treats its inhabitants callously. It, there is no life support in those ships. Well, yeah, no life support and no shielding. <laughs> So there's one hitting you dead. So <laughs> it's unbelievable. They are, look, they're a cool design. They're yeah, a cool design. Awesome I admit design. that, but they just don't have. That that's something special. That it factor that the Millennium Falcon has. The Millennium Falcon is just cool. Which is why I didn't make the top five. Yeah. But, uh, I just yeah, the top five for me is just brilliant, brilliant designs. And uh, so coming up next, there <laughs> was the honourable mention for Herbie. This is, yeah, poor Herbie. This is it, love. All right, oh, poor Herbie. <laughs> oh, <God>. So <laughs> I, can't, I can't bring myself to say it. You can do it. You can do it, Herbie. <laughs> He's cool. Look, uh, the love thing, bug himself makes an appearance. Oh, Joe! Look, Herbie. Well, the, 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 the more recent film was lame, but the old films are cool. Look, Herbie <laughs> has personality. You got to give him that. He's a fun, He's loving. Quite... He's, bug. He squirts he's, black oil on the bad guy. He does, you know. I mean, he's, 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 like a, he's like a driving pratfall for villains. I mean, he, he has personality and he has heart. He's, he's far better than Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll give you that. He right, clearly, so. Yeah, he cares for his owners, you know. He's, he really is the ultimate family-friendly kids' vehicle. So I can understand how... We should make him our logo instead of hell. Okay, let's not go too far. <laughs> Just to follow up, so uh, five, we had a tie for Liberator and Millennium Falcon, four was the DeLorean, three was the Batmobile, specifically the Tim Burton version, uh, number two was the Enterprise D, and number one was the Majesty that was the TARDIS. Thank you very much, everybody, for your votes. What do you guys think? Let us know. Send us some feedback. Feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com and uh, let us know your favourite vehicles. Uh, I mean, should Herbie have been higher up in the list? You tell us. And if you do, I'm just not going to post it. <laughs> now, no, now that's unfair. <laughs> and uh, and uh, no mention of Chi-Chi Bang Bang. What's up with that? Well, okay, if we're going to go with two Ian and Ian flowing inspired cars, let's go with the Aston Martin. Yeah, let's be fair. <laughs> Thanks, guys. This is awesome. Coming up next, coming soon. Okay, so coming soon, we talk about the films that are going to be released uh, in the time between this podcast and the next. November 24th is the release of Immortal, starring our next Superman, Henry Cavill, and also has the release of the Inbetweeners movie, uh, starring the guys from the Inbetweeners TV show, which I haven't seen, but quite frankly, looks like balls. What? I've seen an episode <laughs> of it. I wasn't that impressed by it. <laughs> I can't say. That. Looks like what? Balls. 
what okay. does that even mean? <laughs> and then December 1 has horror movies Dreamhouse and Apollo 18. Uh, so Dreamhouse, your typical horror haunted house sort of deal. And Apollo 18, the, the true story of, uh, <laughs> of the, the real reason why we haven't gone back to the moon. December just 1, one Apollo 18, they've been saying it. Yeah, talking about ages. for about a year now. It's yeah, not a good sign, is it? It's, it's, it's been sent back to be reworked a couple of times. and It does look awful. Yeah, and Dreamhouse, by the way, was the film that has been disowned by both the director and the two lead actors. Really? Yeah. I'm going to watch it now. Apparently, <laughs> um, the studio uh, completely re-edited the film, and the director um, and... Um, Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz, who are the two main stars of the film, have all basically said no. That's awesome. So you that that, that, that should be good signs for that film yeah, as well. Because, you know, uh, upset Daniel Craig. He's trained to kill that man. Exactly He'll right. Take you out. But December one also has the release of Attack the Block, uh, which is a British science fiction uh, movie. Now it's it's kind of weird. Attack the Block's actually been out in Europe uh, for a sub- substantial amount of time. It's actually even released on DVD there, which is just ridiculous. So we finally get a cinema. Cinema release, so uh, yeah, we've seen it, and uh, we can safely say that you shouldn't waste your time. And we also uh, have some releases from the Asta, uh, our NCP's favourite cinema here in Melbourne. Uh, on November twenty-one, the Asta is showing a. On November twenty-one, the Asta is actually going to show Mamba, which is the first full-length feature film that is also full-length two-strip Technicolor. So before Gone with the Wind. There was Mamba. Um, it's the industry's first all-sound, all-colour drama. And uh, so, obviously not very nerd culture-ish, but it's incredibly historical accurate for film for, for the film industry. But recently discovered this film was uh, thought lost for a very long time. and yeah. uh, Thought lost yeah. forever. And yeah. uh, they've found a copy, and it's it's just magnificent. Yeah, so uh, for, for all you film buffs out there, if you like us, you just... You'd be excited about the fact that this lost film has been rediscovered, and so check it out. And on November twenty sixth, they also have the newly restored classic Metropolis, the two thousand and ten version with the extra stuff that Richo reviewed on the website. I cannot recommend seeing this film highly enough to everybody yep. out there. This this new version of it is brilliant. It adds so much more to the film. Awesome! If you get a chance, definitely go and see it. It's just amazing. It's magnificent. I mean, you should see it just because of Metropolis, really. Yeah. But, yeah, see it for the extra stuff. So, it'd be cool. Um, and they also have their usual, you know, daily stuff. I think they're also they're also showing, like, a weekly thing of Doctor Strange Love. Yep. Yep. They'll see the big board! One of the five funniest movies ever made. Once again, guys, go see it. It's worth it. So, check out their full listings at www.astatheatre.net.au. So, last episode, we talked about our competition. It is a chance to rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, to perhaps win a $50 iTunes voucher, which you can spend on whatever you want on iTunes. It's pretty easy. Log in, iTunes, write and review us. Simple as that. Could be negative, could be positive. We don't care. We're not after a love fest. What we're after is your honest opinion of the job that we're doing. Exactly right. I'm after a love fest, but that's just me. Well, don't get me wrong. <laughs> All I'm you need is love. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind if it was uh, that David, the greatest man ever, I wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't, if you, if you, if you think what we're doing is brilliant, then great, let us know. But, you know, the the best way for us to improve what we do is to get feedback from the people that are listening. Well said. If your review is as well said as that just was, you've won. So the competition doesn't finish till our December 18th episode. Uh, so you've got plenty of time. Jump in there. Check it out. And you could win. Don't forget you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. 
Uh, I'll post it on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast or tweet us at at nerdculturecast or leave a comment or on, a, on any of the posts on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com. Uh, really love to hear from uh, anybody about Stranger in a Strange Land. If you yeah, think I'm absolutely. wrong, if you think I'm right, preferably if you think I'm right. And uh, We know you're wrong. And uh, on the top five, what were your top five vehicles? I'd love to hear from you. And of course, rate and review us on iTunes for a chance to win. Uh, next episode, we have Popcorn Junkie Immortals. Let's see how badly they trash Greek mythology. With Henry Cavill, or Cavill, depending on how you look at it. Depending on how you, how you say it, I don't care, he still looks awesome, and uh, I'm looking forward to the news of that. <laughs> Does it sure. say something about uh, Immortals, that we're more excited about the actor in Immortals being in another film <laughs> than we are about Immortals <laughs> itself? <laughs> or even that's, you know... Well, I actually quite like the director. I mean, that's the reason I wanted to see it, because... Um, you like Tarson? Yeah, Tarson, who did The Fall and... Yeah, The Cell. And, um, the the cell, cell, yeah. Yeah, so tune in for that one, uh, which will be episode 13, uh, which young Luke will not be attending. No, sadly, cultural arts, the, um, the joys and necessities of having to make money uh, have, call, have called upon me, so you'll have... Uh, and the episode after that. So you're a after... slave to the man, Luke. So that's you know, right. Look on this. Rebel a... against the man. All you need is love, Luke. You don't look... need money. Grok it. Grok. Look on this. <laughs> look on this, dear cultural lights, as a benefit. You don't have to actually listen to my voice or my overinflated ego for the next two podcasts. You know he has a point. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Think of the positives, Dave. All you need is love. We're going to miss you. So that means for our next episode, it'll just be uh, Crystal, Richard, and myself. The, the only people that count. <laughs> Poor Luke. Hmm. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Trapped in my Luke's, magnificent Luke's tumor. already gone. <laughs> Luke's too busy Luke's... thinking about the money you're going to be rolling That's in. That's right. Money, well, money. In money. his mind, in his mind, Luke is creating a 13th Luke-only episode. <laughs> <laughs> a special Luke edition. In which, in which everybody agrees with him. No, everyone <laughs> argues with me and I just tell them that they're wrong. Okay, you're arguing That's with not yourself, much of an man. argument. That's kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, great episode. Thank you very much, guys. Hope everybody out there in the podcast land enjoyed it. Thank you, Crystal. I'd like to live in podcast land. As long as it was on the Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> Richard. I would be a stranger in a strange podcast land. And Luke. I'm the definition of grok, so... Oh, God. <laughs> Bye! <laughs> Remember, thou art God. <laughs> Remember, I am God. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Happy God. Or, happy God or a vengeful God? Happy God. Happy God. <laughs>
We'll be back to our regular programming in just a short moment.